0: Hi, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Today I'll be speaking with the political economist Eric Haliner about his really terrific book called Forgotten Foundations of Bretton Woods, International Development and the Making of the Postwar Order. The story of the Bretton Woods Conference has been told many times by many historians, but Haliner provides a fresh and compelling account of the conference. He examines the conference's prehistory which he locates in the U.S.'s good-neighbor policy towards Latin America. He reveals the often-forgotten significance that development had for the conference participants, and he shows how representatives of the Global South shape the negotiations, economic thought, and the global order itself. His book is a really welcome intervention. It should be of interest to economic and financial historians, historians of U.S. foreign policy, and anyone wanting a fuller, more inclusive picture of how the world is really governed. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Eric Heleiner about his fascinating new book called The Forgotten Foundations of Bretton Woods. Thanks for joining us, Eric. No problem, thanks for having me. Of course. And so to begin, we always like to ask our uh, interviewees about how they became scholars. Um, so what led you to the fields of uh, political economy and political science and IR? Uh, good question. Um,
1: I was originally more of an economics student and um, and then increasingly took, as an undergrad, took a couple of political science courses, both international relations and uh, more kind of political economy courses, and just really enjoyed them quite a bit. And then uh, when I went to do a master's degree, which initially was going to be in economics, when I arrived at the London School of Economics, they had a new program, I think it was in its second or third year, I've forgotten, third year maybe, uh, which was called Politics of the World Economy. I had a look at the course outline, and I thought, this is exactly what I'm interested in, and so it was a kind of serendipitous that I ended up in the field that's now called International Political Economy, but at the time that I was a graduate student, which was back in the 1980s, this was a quite a new field, and there were very few graduate programs in the world at that time.
0: Interesting. And so um, before we uh, get into the book, uh, I would love it if you could briefly tell our listeners what exactly the Bretton Woods Order is. Right.
1: So that's, it's not a simple answer. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, it, and it symbolizes different things for different people. But But in a very concrete way. Bretton Woods is a is a tiny little town in New Hampshire, which has a beautiful hotel, the Mount Washington Hotel, which is uh, was the location of a conference in July of 1944. So the war, is, Second World War, is still on, and uh, in fact, um, it's not. The conference begins July 1st around the time of the D-Day, uh, that the land, the Normandy landings, and uh, and so it's it's a very unusual moment to have a major international conference, and the objective of the conference was to try to organize the post-war international monetary and financial system with the sense that while the war was still on, uh, it's good to plan what you might uh, be trying to build after the war, and particularly a sense that the, all the countries who were attending were allies or at least neutral countries and, and might be a good environment in which to think ambitiously about avoiding some of the mistakes that took place after World War I, where there was much less planning done about about how the world world economy should be organized. So that's that's the context. Uh, And so people refer to it as the Bretton Woods uh, uh, Conference because of its location. But what they did at the conference was um, came up with a set of agreements uh, to establish two institutions, one called the International Monetary Fund and the other called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And those two institutions were seen as kind of foundational for the post-war international monetary and financial system. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, in particular, had a set of its articles of agreement were almost like a constitution uh, for international monetary and financial relations. And the idea was that countries would ratify those agreements and they would be kind of a binding international legal mechanism. And that was quite a new thing. For international monetary and financial relations, which previously had been organized on a much more informal uh, basis. So that's that's the. I don't know if you want more on the actual content of those agreement.
0: No that that is uh, that was impressively succinct. Um, so uh, so your book tells a surprising story um, about uh, about that history um, about the the origins of the Bretton Woods order, um, and so you show how. Uh, you know, U.S.-Latin American relations in the 1930s and 40s shaped those negotiations. Um, You talk about how global South countries played roles in the negotiations. And um, you show how uh, many of your actors um, were uh, really interested in development. Um, And so we're going to get into all of that. but I'd I'd like to ask first a question about the research that went into this book because I was going through your footnotes and bibliography and uh, you seem to have ended up in uh, an impressive number of archives um, all over the world. So what was your research process like? Um, Did you have any particular experiences in the archive or in an archive um, that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, so this is a question which...
1: uh, I'm embarrassed to answer because graduate students take detailed courses on methodology and you're supposed to approach things in specific ways, but this was really kind of an accidental uh, project with at the beginning, uh, no intention of where I ended up. Uh, So in in this particular case, I was was doing some archival research on uh, another project entirely and uh, stumbled upon some archives in Washington, which uh, I just found absolutely fascinating. And these were, uh, discussions in about 1940 uh, between U.S. and Latin American officials about um, how they might organize the Inter-American system in a context where Germany had essentially overrun uh, Europe, and they were thinking about the Inter-American Inter-American context as a kind of a increasingly possibly a closed economic block. And those discussions uh, were raising issues which I just had no idea had been discussed so early on, and they were really issues about The idea of international development, the idea that rich countries, in this case the United States, might uh, contribute through public mechanisms to the development of poor countries, in this case Latin American countries. And I had often taught the history of international development, and there's a lot of conventional narratives that these archives were just really... um, uh, su- surprising me, because we, we we often talk about the origins of the idea of international development coming a little bit later than that. So that's that was the original prompt, and then it just led me into all kinds of other uh, things, step by step. And in each case, um, I, I know you're a historian, so you've done archival work. Often you find absolutely nothing for days, weeks on end. But uh, and that was certainly true in this project. But I found other moments where you'd hit an archive and it's just a goldmine of of material and it would lead you into directions you had no idea that you would be going in when the project began or even when you arrived at that particular archive. So overall, the the project took a long time. I mean, this was over 10 years
0: uh, wow. in the making. Wow. Well, uh, I'm glad I asked. Uh, and so one of the reasons why your account is so surprising and something that you've already been uh, well, something that I, I've mentioned and you've been alluding to is is that uh, U.S. Latin American relations, the Third World, and um, development don't usually come up in accounts of the origins of Bretton Woods. Um, and so, I'm just wondering why historians have overlooked this part of the history.
1: Yeah, that's that's a question I found myself increasingly asking as I found more and more evidence of the extensive nature of the discussions at development. Of, of international development at Bretton Woods, and so it, it led me back to the secondary literature, the existing oh. histories of Bretton Woods, which really rarely say much about it. And so, as you as you as you're asking, why what, you know why would there be such an odd oversight? And I I do think there's a uh, an answer, which is um, that in the early post-war period, so after the after World War II ends. So ends in 1945. The Bretton Woods Conference was a year before, but right after the end of the war, uh, there was a kind of a quite a rapid change in the implementation of the, these agreements that had been reached in 1944, and in particular the the development side of the uh, Bretton Woods agreements was suddenly downplayed for reasons I can go into if you're interested, but essentially linked to some of the politics around the Cold War and and some of the complications in, um, in, uh, in foreign relations at that time. And so if you were then to write a history of Bretton Woods, and the first major history comes out of the 1950s, um, y- you're looking at it through the lens of the 1950s, which is that the Bretton Woods agreements are a kind of a, about the Western alliance, especially about the Anglo-American relationship that constructed them in 1944, and the notion that China, for example, uh, had a major role at the Bretton Woods conference, which it did—it was actually brought the second-largest delegation to the conference. But the notion that you would write about that was less interesting because China was now on the other side of the Cold War and and not part of the system, and and so that and and some of the other countries that were. From poor parts of the world who participated, they just were less central to your concerns as a as a, a historian of Bretton Woods in the 1950s. And once that gets set, I think there is a bit of a path dependence where people read the early major works, cite them, and, and just a conventional wisdom gets established. And so that's that's kind of what I increasingly began to think of as as why why history got off slightly on the wrong track in this particular uh, episode.
0: Great. So your book is divided into um, thematic and mostly chronological chapters. Um, The first few chapters look closely at U.S.-Latin American financial and economic relations um, in the 30s and 40s, and then the rest of the book examines um, different aspects of the creation of the Bretton Woods Order, Uh, and I was really interested in um, those um, early chapters on the good neighbor policy and its um, economic and financial dimensions, um, which I am ashamed to say as an Americanist uh, and someone who studies U.S. foreign policy, I knew actually a little about um, the economic and financial dimensions to that. Um, so can you say a little bit about um, how this policy developed in the 1930s, um, which institutions and people worked on it, and um, what motivated them to uh, enact this um this policy that was such a depart- departure from um earlier um uh policies
1: well it is a fascinating story and and you're not alone in in not knowing so much about it it's um there's there certainly is good work done
0: uh,
1: about it uh by many people before me but um i also felt like i knew quite a bit about it. U.S. foreign economic policy in that period, and, and really had not come across much of this work before I began this project. So the the um, what, what I think was particularly fascinating about it is that it's in the context of relations with Latin America that a lot of U.S. Uh, uh, interest in developing uh, international internationalist economic policies uh, originate, and, and in a way you can understand why in the 1930s context, that the world is increasingly fragmented into economic blocks. And the U.S. has many existing relations with uh, Latin America. And so Latin America becomes a kind of region which uh, the U.S. can uh, almost experiment. And that's really the way a lot of the, the top U.S. policymakers thought about it. It can experiment with new kinds of foreign economic policies that might then form the basis for a more uh, globally oriented policy uh, in what becomes the post-war period. Uh, and so the, the origins of the policy are are with Roosevelt's election, I think is absolutely central, Franklin Roosevelt's election in 1932. He is committed to this kind of good neighbor concept that, that the U.S. shouldn't be interfering uh, uh, in, uh, in Latin American countries. By the late 1930s, The notion of a good neighbor is not just about, it's not kind of a negative concept. We won't interfere. It's also got a positive connotation that we will, in fact, also uh, contribute to your, meaning Latin American countries, to your uh, development aspirations. And a lot of Latin American countries in the 1930s, in the context of uh, the economic crisis, the Great Depression, had reoriented their economic policies in the context often of quite dramatic political upheavals. And the policies had gone from often very liberal um, in, a, in a 19th century sense rather than in an American political sense in the current period, but liberal meaning free trade, uh, limited state intervention. They'd gone from that kind of policy to a much more state intervention, a state-led development strategy with the idea of increasing living standards in their own particular countries. And those policies were often quite ambitious. And U.S. policymakers by the late 1930s are saying, uh, you know, we're we're interested in uh, assisting your objectives of increasing your standard of living through state-led development. And that was a real departure from U.S. policy. The U- U.S. had been involved in economic advising before that time, but it had usually been in support of much more economically liberal, like, more limited state, free market uh, policies. And now they were saying, no, we're, we're willing to uh, assist in some way uh, uh, these new kinds of internationalist ideas that you have around the idea of state-led development. So that's really the the origin of the policy. So, so then if the question is why, why is there that reorientation in U.S. policy? I think there's three explanations which I give in the book. One One is a kind of strategic one, which is that U.S. policymakers are increasingly concerned about uh, Nazi influence in Latin America. And so if you're a U.S. policymaker, you're concerned to cultivate alliances in the region, especially as the international security context is getting increasingly unstable. And the Germans, the Nazi government in Germany, was actively supporting Latin American state-led development, and so if you, as an American policymaker, came in and said, "No, you know, we just want to support what we used to do, which was more free-market-oriented policies and not really development-oriented in this activist way," uh, you know, you wouldn't get a very good reception in many countries because the Germans were offering much more interventionist support. So there's partly that kind of strategic rationale. There's then, I think, an e- some economic rationale where there were some. U.S. businesses that had an interest in supporting industrialization in uh, in Latin America. And so these might be exporters of machine goods or uh, exporters of products that were going to help with industrialization in various ways. So the second explanation was more of an economic explanation where there were certain U.S. businesses that uh, could see some benefits in latin american industrialization initiatives and so they might be uh, exporters of machine goods or other other things that are supporting uh, latin american industrialization and um, there's some evidence that u.s policymakers are listening to them and and also interested in supporting uh, u.s businesses that might be able to export uh, to the region as part of uh, building a u.s recovery out of the great depression and then there's a third and final explanation which in some ways is the most intriguing, which is that um, there were a number of people that I came across in the archives who were clearly very ardent New Dealers. And so they had, you know, in the context of Roosevelt's New Deal, uh, been involved in the idea that the U.S. was pioneering new forms of uh, public management of the economy. And often with a kind of internal development uh, ideas, so the Tennessee Valley Authority, for example, is seen as kind of an internal development uh, mechanism and uh so some of these new dealers, having had this idea of domestic intervention, now want to translate it to the international sphere, and they look to Latin American uh, countries as a as again a kind of a way to experiment with new forms of public international intervention uh, at the international level. And uh, so this is ideas like uh, the commitment of public funds in international development loans. Um, it's it's an idea that the loans themselves could be supporting state-led uh, uh, projects. It's an idea of economic advising that would go from, for example, the U.S. Federal Reserve System to Latin American central banks to teach them how to be doing new kinds of macroeconomic management. Uh, and all of this, I think, is uh, is just a different, if you like, a different ideational framing. It's it's a different set of ideas that are coming forward with with new dealers. So what was particularly interesting, also from my standpoint, was um, was the way in which some of these new dealers, I think, identified with Latin American critiques of Wall Street, uh, and so there are a number of Latin American figures who felt that part of the economic troubles that Latin America had experienced in the past were linked to uh, poor lending practices by the New York financial community and also a sense of general kind of exploitation by American financial interests. And there were a number of people in the New Deal who also were very critical of uh, of Wall Street and the New York financial community. And And I was struck by how some of them, I think, felt a a certain kind of affinity to other people who are making a similar critique. And so some of the ideas of public international lending, which eventually becomes uh, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, I think came out of a sense that we can't really trust the private financiers in New York to do a good job of accomplishing uh, public goals, which in this case was the promotion of, of development in a poorer part of the world. So that's uh, all of that combines this combination of uh, strategic motivations, in some cases a sense of economic interests, uh, but also this new kind of New Deal uh, ideas, all those three things combine to generate a policy which is highly innovative in, in the context of U.S. foreign policy, which was this idea that, that the U.S. could play an active role in supporting uh, the development of, of poor countries.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And something that surprised me um, about uh, well, reading this this uh, this part of your account was just how quickly um, Latin American countries um, forgot about earlier, you know, U.S. Um, uh, imperialist occupations, or um, about their problematic about the U.S.'s um, problematic financial advising, you know, in the the nineteen twenties, for instance. Um, you know, countries like Cuba and Paraguay, uh, along with others, um, um, they sought out advice uh, on how to reform um their own financial and monetary systems um really quickly so how uh, can you just explain how that happened yeah it's an interesting question um and it's not
1: true you know it's not the case that everyone in latin america was enthusiastic uh but but you're certainly right to say that there were quite a few especially at the policy level quite a few latin american Officials who are very intrigued with the new U.S. foreign economic policy, and I think that has some longer roots. I've actually been doing some other work more recently on that. Uh, and so, in the context of the Great Depression in the early 1930s, there are a number of Latin American um, officials who make proposals for international financial organizations, uh, usually in the context of the Inter-American relations, and they call, they often call it the Inter-American Bank proposals. And uh, so these were already on the table. They'd been made as early as, as 1933 at a at an inter-American conference. And it was Latin American officials who were putting those ideas forward. And throughout the decade, up until 1939, it was on the U.S. side that there was resistance to the idea of an international financial institution that might promote uh, development. But but if you're so, you're asking kind of why were Latin American officials interested in that? I think you just have to think about uh, the the crisis that they are facing. Like if you're if you're a Latin American official in the early 1930s, global commodity prices have collapsed. Your external markets have collapsed for your products. Uh, you are not anymore getting capital coming from abroad. All of these things were a dramatic shift, and so you're struggling to try to figure out. How can you keep uh, economic growth um, uh, going? How can you keep employment levels? How can you you maintain living standards if not increase them? And and you're you're just trying to think of some ways to do that. And the idea that you could get capital through public mechanisms at the international level becomes one of the innovations that they begin to experiment with at the level of ideas. And it's really that idea that the new dealers then pick up, and like it's a it's a latin American initiative that they're then finally endorsing in nineteen thirty nine at a conference in uh in panama but if I just mentioned one other thing because i've been reading about it more recently that that this is even true of some people who in Latin America who were very strong had very strong anti imperialist um rhetoric, and so the person i've been reading about lately is uh uh, a guy called Aya de la Torre, who's a Peruvian, uh, mm-hmm. strong anti-imperialist leader throughout the 1920s, very critical of, of U.S. involvement in Latin America. And uh, and even he, by the late 1930s, is is sort of saying, you know, well, the New Deal is different, that, that we can work with the Roosevelt people in the way that we couldn't with U.S. officials in the past. And and if if they're really saying that they're critical of past Wall Street practices and they're really saying they're committed to supporting our development uh, aspirations, you know, maybe maybe it's worth a try. And so, you know, even people of that kind were were interested in these ideas. But but many of the people who are involved in the Bretton Woods negotiations, they're more conservative officials, like their central bank officials or finance officials. And from from their standpoint, it's just very uh, attractive some of the things that the, the Americans are uh, are offering like like public international uh, development
0: lending. Hmm. Um so one of the most fascinating arguments about um or of the from the book is how these relations between the US and uh countries like Cuba and Mexico and others um served as a template for many of the Bretton Woods proposals. Um, and I'm just, uh, I was just hoping that you could um, walk us through how it became a template. So maybe um, some of the particular people like uh, Henry Dexter White um, or others um, who uh, were involved in those um, uh, U.S.-Latin American relations and then ended up also being, um, you know, one of the leaders in the Bretton Woods negotiations.
1: Sure yeah and I, and I think it's an interesting example of how history rarely uh you know there's rarely kind of big bangs or sudden dramatic changes it, it generally evolves incrementally and and I think this is really a great example of that where where the Bretton Woods conference happens in 1944 and, and it began with a set of negotiations in around 1942 and many historians have just been deeply impressed by the innovations and the um, leadership, really, intellectual leadership that many of the Bretton Woods architects brought to those negotiations. But when you see this previous U.S.-Latin American history, um, you see that that some of the innovations were less dramatic, that they had already been experimenting with a number of these ideas in the inter-American context. And so really there's two which are particularly um clear cases of that. One is what the IMF became, which is the idea of uh, lending short-term loans to countries when they're experiencing balance of payments difficulties. And that idea was really experimented by US officials uh, on a bilateral basis with a number of different Latin American countries in the late 1930s. And, you know, these are Latin American countries are countries that are often commodity exporters. And so they're experiencing huge volatility in their balance of payments, according to commodity prices, which themselves are often very volatile. And so one of the offers of help that the New Deal officials are uh, making to Latin American countries in the late 30s is to say, when you experience a sudden price shock, a sudden shock to your balance of payments, you know, we, we can help you to paper that over with short-term loans that allow you to stabilize your exchange rate, so you don't experience quite the volatility that you would or that you might otherwise and from a u.s standpoint that had some benefits because they uh, either exporters or sometimes u.s investors in the country would prefer often to have some degree of exchange rate stability so that happened Uh, and then the other innovation which happened well before the Bretton woods negotiations even began was the idea of longer term loans for the purpose of supporting development goals, and those again were pioneered through bilateral mechanisms, especially connected with the export import bank uh, and again, responding often to Latin American uh, requests but also the motivations I described earlier of um, of uh, you know s- sometimes u s businesses might want to be exporting to a certain country and it would be helpful. If the, a loan was facilitating uh, that process or uh, other, some of the ideational explanations I had, I was mentioning earlier, where U.S. officials are just interested in the idea of pioneering public lending at the international level, just as they had been doing domestically and uh, within the United States. So those two things all are, are percolating, if you like, in the inter-American context in bilateral channels. But then the most important development from my standpoint was uh, just after the Second World War began, begins in in, uh, September 1939, there's a conference in Panama, an inter-American conference, where Latin American officials once more bring this idea of of creating an inter-American bank, and U.S. officials endorse it finally, after many years that they had not been willing to endorse it. And for the first time, you begin to get discussions about those two ideas I just mentioned, short-term lending for balance of payment support and long-term development lending being uh, offered not just bilaterally, but rather also through uh, a multilateral financial institution. And that's a huge innovation because then you're halfway towards creating the IMF and World Bank. And so there's an intense set of negotiations that begin... In the fall of 1940 and culminate in the spring, or sorry, the fall of 1939 and culminate in the spring of 1940, when they have a full convention uh, agreed upon of exactly how you could establish uh, an IMF World Bank type institution. And what's interesting in retrospect is that the Inter American Bank proposal, which, as I'll mention in a second, is never endorsed fully. Uh, But the proposal really combined the IMF and the World Bank into one institution. That institution was going to do both short-term and long-term lending. And at the center of those negotiations uh, was this fellow, Harry Dexter White, who's drafting all of the text in cooperation with other U.S. officials and Latin American officials, but he's really at the center of it. And he, fascinatingly, is also at the center of the Bretton Woods negotiations that begin two years later. Uh, and so there's often been a kind of a, a bit of a mystery about like, how did how did Harry Dexter White come up with his plans for the IMF and the World Bank so quickly in early 1942, when he was asked by the U.S. Treasury Secretary at the time, Henry Morgenthau, to, to draft some initial proposals. This is right after the U.S. has uh, been attacked at Pearl Harbor. And uh, because he writes these very long plans uh, very, very quickly within a period of a few weeks. And after you've seen what he did in the Latin American context two years earlier, it becomes easier to understand. He had already spent an enormous number of months drafting an institution, which, although it's not identical, had many similarities to the ideas that then come out in his early plans uh, uh, for Bretton Woods. So that's the, that's the, uh, kind of pre-history, if you like, of of the Bretton Woods negotiations, which I think are revealed when you see these archives about U.S.-Latin American relations in the late 30s, early 40s. Hmm.
0: Yeah, no, everything really does start to make a lot more sense uh, after reading uh, about this earlier period, um, especially uh, with um, Dexter White's, uh, uh, yeah, just the the speed at which he uh, draws up these plans. So, the, you know, the, the U.S. wasn't, um, you know, acting, uh, you know, laterally or they weren't, you know, the only ones that were um, drawing up plans. Uh, a big chunk of your book is also about how um, leaders and representatives of um, the, the Global South uh, were involved in the Bretton Woods negotiations. Um, and so what were some of their more, more interesting or influential contributions?
1: Right, so that's that's a, a really good question. Um, so if we begin with the Latin American side, uh, I think the way you have to see their contribution is to put it in that longer decade, pre- previous decade of of proposals that they'd been putting forward. So if someone asks me, and, and since I have published this book, I've often been asked, so what you know, what exactly was the Latin American contribution? But my answer is to say, well, it really goes back to the 1930s when they're making these proposals for an Inter-American Bank beginning in in the early 1930s. And that was a very innovative idea. They were proposing the idea of a multilateral international financial uh, institution. And it's that idea that then uh, Dexter White and other U.S. officials pick up. And they're often credited, you know, with, with pioneering some of that stuff. But I really think you have to see it as coming, at least in part, out of the Latin American um, context. Uh, some of the other key Countries from poorer parts of the world at that time who participate actively in the conference are China, and that to me was a really uh, a story I had not known previously at all before beginning this research. And so I mentioned earlier that China brings the second largest delegation to the conference, uh, and and yet if you read many accounts of Bretton Woods, China never appears once, even in indexes of books, uh, and the Chinese are at that time. Um, seen by American officials as one of the four great powers uh, for the post-war period. And so this is Britain, the U.S., the Soviet Union and China. And but of course, the Chinese Chinese political situation is very unstable. Uh, The Japanese have have penetrated far into China. And and uh, so the leadership is really in a very weak position. But they devote enormous attention to Bretton Woods' negotiations, interestingly, even proposing a plan, uh, which uh, I found in, the, in some archives in Princeton, and I had not seen previously and hasn't, hadn't been um, published uh, in the main documentary volume, which contains the various plans of Bretton Woods. Usually the focus is on a British plan, which was developed mainly by John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, and the American plans, which were developed largely at least initially, by Harry Dexter White. But there was also this Chinese plan. And the Chinese plan, um, I don't think you can describe it as highly innovative in the sense that it really was drawing on various parts of the Keynes and White uh, plans. But the most interesting part of the Chinese role at Bretton Woods was their invocation of a much earlier idea put forward by the the famous Chinese political leader, Sun Yat-sen, Uh, Who, right after World War I, had proposed the idea of an international development organization? He called it the IDO. And uh, when the Chinese come to Bretton Woods, they say, What we see this conference as having the potential to do is to finally bring to fruition uh, Sun Yat sen's vision from the post World War I uh, period. And that's, you know, absolutely fascinating. A vision. I'm sure there were many people at the conference who had never heard of Sun Yat-sen's ideas. And yet there were some American officials we know who were familiar with Sun Yat-sen's ideas about international development. And um, there's some evidence that some of the early U.S. interest in the idea of international development organizations, in fact, came at least in part from reading Sun Yat-sen's most famous book on the topic, which is a book that was published Initially, in 1920, uh, and published in English, so it was it was available to English-speaking American policymakers. So that's I think that was the most innovative part of the Chinese um, role was to say, hey, you know, one of our famous political leaders already had some of these ideas, and so when we see the proposals for a international bank for reconstruction and development, and what became the World Bank, uh, you know, Sun Yat-sen already had that idea. It was their kind of their kind of uh,
0: line. Great, and I, I was just wondering if there were um, representatives from some of those um, poorer countries uh, that uh, really dissented um, from the the Bretton Woods agreements. Um, so, some maybe perhaps like some early critics of um, uh, the Bretton Woods order.
1: There were certainly some uh, delegates who went home after the meeting and were immediately critical of how it didn't take development seriously enough. And so, my my book is saying. Uh, it's it's in some ways remarkable how much attention was paid to development this early on in the history of the uh, Bretton Woods system. But for some of the delegates who are at the conference, they wanted much more. So, for example, um, many Latin American countries came to the meetings hoping that it would address the issue of international commodity price stabilization. And the issue is discussed, but is essentially uh, sidelined. Uh, as an issue that will later be taken up in the international trade negotiations that began a few years after, or began immediately after the war, um, and so there's disappointments of that kind. There were also disappointments around the size of the World Bank, or what was initially called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, that that some uh, people from poor countries felt that it it was just uh, it wasn't going to be as helpful to them as as they had hoped, and uh, there's also some discontent around uh, the constraints that the IMF's Articles of Agreement, the kind of constitution I described earlier, some of the constraints that will be imposed on them by signing up to these Bretton Woods uh, uh, agreements. So, for example, if you if you become a member of the IMF, it's uh, at that time, uh, you were signing up to have a stable, stable but adjustable, but still a stable exchange rate um, you had to, um, there, there were rules about the extent to which you could be constraining payments across borders, um, especially on the current account, on the trade account. And I mean, Latin American countries, for example, had had large controls on external payments. And so they were nervous about the liberalizing effects that would be imposed on them by signing up to the, the IMF uh, articles. Uh, and then there were some countries, of course, that didn't, attend at all and so the most interesting example there is Argentina uh which is which is not a participant in in the meeting so all Latin American countries are there except for Argentina and and you know and that is linked to Argentina's position in in the politics of World War II but from the standpoint of um, some Argentines the most famous of which was Raul Prebisch who becomes one of the leading advocates of international development in the post-war period raul prebisch had been a, a central bank governor in argentina and then pushed out in 1943 but he he you know was very disappointed that argentina was not uh, was not participating
0: um, yeah just building off of that slightly um, one thing that i was um, really impressed with in your book is uh, um, the uh, j- just like how thick this latin american sort of south south Economics network was, and so you have like central bankers and um, economists. A lot of them, are, you know, d- doing their degrees in the United States, uh, who uh, are interacting with each other, who are um, interacting with um, U.S. policymakers and economists. And I think, um I mean, Raul um, uh, Prebisch is just someone that just comes up all over the place in the uh, the twentieth century.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you find that interesting because I was absolutely fascinated by that as well. I mean, it's it's south south in a in a narrow sense of intra-Latin American generally. Uh, What's what's kind of strikingly absent when you think about the politics later in the 1960s and 70s is there isn't really a kind of a Latin American, Asian, African alliance. And uh, even the, I mean, it's interesting. One thing I found in some Chinese archives was was some Chinese officials saying, you know, we can be the leaders of of the poorer countries of the world. Uh, but, But really it's not, even at the conference, there's not a huge degree of coalition building of that kind. It's and and of course, Africa is hardly represented. The the main uh, country that's promoting development is Ethiopia at that time. Uh, Liberia is represented. South Africa is represented. Egypt's there. Both Egypt and and uh, Ethiopia are pushing some development ideas, but but Liberia and South Africa much less so. And the rest of Africa is colonized and and not uh, not represented. Uh, And so, you know, you don't have the kind of alliances that came up later uh, with the context of the development debates of the 1960s and 70s. But you're right that within Latin America, it was striking the extent to which there was a kind of a intellectual consensus being formed, often in the context of the negotiations themselves. And as you pointed out, fascinatingly, some of the leaders were central bankers who we don't normally think of as as uh, intellectual radicals, if you like, uh, but but these central bankers, of whom Raoul Prebysh was certainly a central figure, were were really uh, pioneering new ideas of how governments could manage their domestic economies in ways that might promote uh, um, higher living standards. And it's also true on the U.S. side, where uh, it was it was officials within the U.S. Federal Reserve System, not so much in the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which was more conservative, but within the Federal Reserve System uh, officials in Washington who were often interacting very closely with these Latin American central bank intellectuals uh, about these new ideas. And so the, the key figure there, as you will have seen in the book, is Robert Triffin, who was Belgian by origin but was working in the Federal Reserve at that time. And Triffin and Prebisch strike up a very close friendship. And uh, and Triffin is going to all kinds of Latin American countries uh, right around the time of the Brentwoods negotiations with, you know, giving advice, which is just extremely different than the advice that um, so-called money, American money doctors in the 1920s had given. Instead of saying you should set up the gold standard and you should uh, liberalize the economy, they, were, they had much more activist ideas about what the government could do to promote industrialization and, and state-led development.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, And so one other thing that I I really wanted to ask you about um, was uh, about the some of the differences between the um, British delegation and the U.S. delegation, um, because, you know, uh, um, as as you point out in the book, usually um, Bretton Woods gets seen as this like Anglo-American initiative. Um, but something um, uh, that's really interesting about your book is that it, it shows that um, some of those disputes, but uh, in very different terms and about very different things. Um, and so, uh, I mean, uh, um, so, yeah, what, what were some of those disputes? I mean, one of the one of the things that I was um, uh, really interested in, uh, and this is kind of adjacent to the the Britain was negotiation, negotiations themselves, um, but it's illustrative of, of their differences. Was the um, story about um, Ethiopia um, and how it became, uh, you know, basically a, a protectorate of um, uh, of Britain after um, 1941, uh, and but then Ethiopia worked with the United States to basically peel away from uh, the the British. Uh, and the the U.S. and and Britain, they just had completely different understandings of how to integrate Ethiopia into the global economy. I, th- I think I might have uh, answered a little bit of the question, but could you elaborate on that and some of the differences?
1: Sure. No, you're absolutely right. And and that particular example, I was absolutely fascinated by that one too. The um, yeah, the it, it's such an emblematic case where the British are coming in and saying. What we imagine the place of a of a poor country in the world economy to be is that its monetary system will be governed by a currency board which essentially meant a fixed exchange rate and no real capacity of the government to do activist macroeconomic management uh, and the Americans in this case it's once again Harry Dexter White with some other officials uh who are saying no we're you know we're willing to do the kinds of things that Robert Triffin is saying. Needs to be done, which is a more uh, activist-oriented central bank, uh, allowing for exchange rate adjustments and allowing for capital controls and and different ways of managing um, the national economy's relationship to the world economy that might allow for more policy autonomy for the Ethiopian government to promote its development uh, objectives. And so, as as you suggest, it's it's kind of a struggle. Between U.S. officials with this more activist New Deal orientation and British officials with a more um, more colonial, if you like, uh, attitude, you know they had had currency boards in in many of their colonies, and so they're sort of that's the model they're used to. Um, there, it's not to say there was no discussion of of ideas of development in the British circles, because um, even Keynes himself had. Uh, become initially famous in his career through writing about Indian currency and finance. It's his first major work, and in that work, he he's open to uh, some less orthodox ideas about what how money might be managed in poor uh, regions of the world. But but Keynes himself, you know, he just doesn't seem very passionate about development issues. That's that's my sense. He hadn't traveled in the developing world much. He's He's, uh, it's not his central concern. And then he, like all British officials, are, are really uh, fixated on their own enormous economic troubles that are going to appear the moment the war ends, which is that they've accumulated huge sterling balances, uh, which are going to have to be managed. These are essentially um, uh, debts that they owe to people who've been accumulating sterling balances. And so one of the reasons you want... Uh, poor countries like Ethiopia to be part of a sterling-based currency board is that that's <laughs> supportive of the British balance of payments. And so the Americans, you know, are in a very different situation where um, they're emerging from the war as a major creditor to the world and and they have more freedom to be experimentalist, whereas the British are very, very constrained and very conscious of those those constraints
0: wonderful and um we we are now nearing the end of the book and as well the interview uh, and i um i wanted to ask you a question about um after um you know after uh, uh going through um this like new narrative of the brentwood's um, negotiations and its origins and its prehistory um like how should this change our like broader Uh, uh, narratives about um, the 20th century and about um, international organizations, these other histories?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, Maybe I can just answer it by um, telling you uh, what it's done to my own research trajectory. Great. So uh, like for me, the most interesting thing was to um, come to understand this formative moment of the post-war period uh, from a less kind of anglo american or western centric uh, standpoint, and to recognize that some of the key initiatives and some of the key ideas not not all of them just some of them uh, had uh, had had a much wider geographical origin in in Latin American thought or chinese thought or whatever it might be and so i th- I think that's um, I think that's useful for historians of international relations to recognize that key norms Uh, You know, we we often have a sense that norms kind of originate in the most powerful center of the world and then diffuse outward. Uh, But but I think you know in this particular case it's it's not entirely true that the norms are coming from many different places and they're mixing together in kind of uh, transnational ways, networks that uh, are not at all uh, just one unidirectional. Uh, and And I think it helps us to move towards more of a sense of global history, if you like, where we can think about the the flow of ideas being multidirectional uh, and um, a multiplicity of origins of those ideas, and also the complicated ways in which individuals are sitting in particular locations in international relations but uh, but forming uh, really often quite complicated alliances in ways that that some of our more conventional international relations uh, scholarship doesn't, I think, fully capture.
0: Great. And that's actually a wonderful segue into um, the final question that we always ask on this show, um, which is uh, what are you working on right now?
1: Right. So, so I'm now working on essentially um, what you might call a kind of a global intellectual history of ideas about the politics of the world economy. Uh, And so in my own field of international political economy, people will often uh, teach the foundations of the field as being uh, three traditions, most of which are originated, well, all of which are originated in Western thought. And so that would be economic liberalism, kind of ideas about free trade. And that would be originating with Adam Smith and David Ricardo and figures like that. And then a kind of a more nationalist tradition which is often associated with Alexander Hamilton or uh, Frederick Liszt figures like that and then a more radical Marxist tradition associated with Marx and later Marxist theories of imperialism and what's striking about the way we present the field to students uh, or at least how we've done it historically is that it, it is a it's giving them a sense that these ideas only emerged out of a out of a European generally European and American thinkers and I'm just trying to um, think of a way that we can also bring in thinkers like Sun Yat-sen and and some of these Latin American thinkers and also Indian thinkers. And, and, uh, I, I work in Canada and so also Canadian thinkers, <laughs> uh, but, but thinkers who are working more in the margins in terms of where power exists within the world economy, but whose ideas were, um, often very interesting and often quite influential in a way that we have not been presenting to, uh, to uh, students. So it's really an attempt to provide a, a different kind of intellectual history of the field for, for students that gives a wider view of, of where ideas came from in the late 18th and 19th, early 20th century.
0: Well, I really can't wait for that one. Uh, that, that sounds really exciting. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Great. Well, thanks very much for your interest in the book. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel with the New Books Network.